Let's take our Bibles this morning, your, your own or the Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, if you could raise your hand and one of the ushers can get you a, a copy. And if we could turn again to Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, First Thessalonians. And I'll be reading to you from chapter uh, 3 of First Thessalonians, the first five verses of that chapter. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Hear God's word. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother, and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Thus far God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this display of pastoral concern that Paul had for this young congregation at Thessalonica. Paul having to leave abruptly, Father, having been driven out because of the resistance to the word that was taking place, and he being concerned about their welfare, that uh, perhaps uh, false teachers had come in, swaying them from the truth, or outside persecution, and he wanted to know if they were continuing in the faith, keeping the faith, running the race, fighting the fight. But Father, I pray that you would help us uh, as we look at this passage, as he brings forth the, the reality of the suffering that Christians will go through in this life. Help us understand the, the whys and the wherefores of that, Father. Indeed, we ask that you would Uh, Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this uh, particular passage, these first five verses of chapter 3, let me just make a kind of overall statement to kind of put things in perspective. And that statement is this, all of history, every aspect of history, every detail of history from the very beginning, from creation, and what will ultimately be the end of this age. And we understand as Christians that the end of this age will be marked by the return, the glorious uh, return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That all of history is part of a grand and a remarkable plan. In fact, uh, Theologians would often refer to what you might call the redemptive historic design of God. And what's meant by that is that God is in the process, in the working out of history, every detail of it, of redeeming a people for himself, redeeming, taking back from the enemy these ones who have sinned, who uh, are now God would redeem them. And it's been, there's the redemptive aspect of it, uh, but also historic, meaning that uh, God has progressively been revealing from the very beginning, right in the garden, up to our time, this great plan of his. Progressively revealing, progressively bringing it to pass. 
And the culmination of it uh, is through the redemptive work, ultimately, of Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament, every aspect of it, points to the coming of Jesus Christ to fulfill this redemptive, historic design and purpose of God. All that went before the coming of Jesus Christ, uh, prefigured that the coming of Jesus. Uh, all that went before was a shadow and a type, ultimately pointing to Christ, setting the stage for the coming of Christ. And when I say setting the stage, I'm talking about e- the, including the rebellion, the fall of Adam and Eve. That too was part of God's redemptive historic design. Setting the stage ultimately for Christ to come. And ultimately Christ did come and that would be the, the formal establishment of this kingdom. This kingdom that God is assembling through the course of history and the inauguration of it came after the resurrection of Christ. And we know that when Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, in reference to an Old Testament prophecy from Daniel about the Son of Man coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, uh, you can find that in Daniel 7. Jesus, in making reference to that, because he often referred to himself as the Son of Man, this remarkable divine person that is being prophesied in that passage, and who was given all authority and power, and he says that about himself. He essentially told the disciples in Matthew 28:18, I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy that was given to Daniel hundreds of years ago. I am that Son of Man. I am that one who's about to come on the clouds to the Ancient of Days because he was about to ascend into heaven. And he's saying, now because I've accomplished this work of redemption, that which was foretold, now all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And therefore, that is the inauguration of what we now refer to as the last days, the latter days. And we've talked about that before. We won't go into detail. But Paul and Peter and the other writers, John, understood the age in which we are living as the latter days or the last days. And the inauguration of it was the finish of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ as he proclaimed to his disciples, all authority has been given to me. And now the church has been enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and witness to, for the gathering of God's people, ultimately. And how did this all happen? Well, it's interesting in the introduction to the book of Hebrews in the Bible, that marvelous uh, Three or four verse introduction to that passage in speaking of Jesus Christ, ultimately speaking of his superiority over the prophets, the angels and all that went before him is described as the brightness in verse three of chapter one, the brightness of his glory, God's glory and the express image of his person. There is the expression of the deity of Jesus in his incarnation who upholds all things by the word of his power. There is his creative activity. If there is any doubt about who Jesus is, the Son of God, he is God as well. He is one of the persons of the Godhead. But then this is said about him, when he had by himself purged our sins, and in a couple of words, summing up the entire earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. He took on a human nature, for the purpose of living the life of obedience that none of us have lived, 
and also for paying the price for our disobedience, the disobedience of God's people. That's why he went to the cross. And there he paid the price. And there he uh, conquered death. And we know that uh, he paid the price and conquered death because he rose again from the dead. And that's what's meant there. After he had purged our sins, after he had made a way of access whereby a sinner could come to God on the basis of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. And now has sat down, the writer goes on to say, having purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's the inauguration of this great kingdom. This kingdom which will find its culmination at the end of the age when Jesus Christ returns in great glory and power. And that's what the Bible's all about. The preparation for it and the inauguration of it and the bringing of it to completion. Nothing random in the course of human history. It might seem that way to you. There's nothing arbitrary that takes place. We're confused by a lot of events. Why did, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Part of our faith rests in the facts that God knows why it happened. And it's for His glory and for the good of His people. And we can rest in that. But to know that everything is that random or arbitrary gives, gives you peace of mind. That it is a demonstration of, of a full and a complete sovereign God who rules and overrules every aspect of life. Well, having seen this inauguration of this kingdom and all that's taken place, the question might arise as along these lines, well, why isn't everything great then? Why isn't everything such that there's great security? Christ has accomplished His redemptive purpose. Everything in the Old Testament has found its fulfillment in him. He's accomplished redemption. He's ascended. He's presented himself to the Father. Why isn't there great prosperity in a golden age of the gospel? That well, How come we're not living in that right now? Well, let's be sure, first of all, in answering that question, to say there was a great victory. This was the mortal blow, the cross... To Satan. This was the fulfillment of what was promised in the garden, this one who would come, who would bruise the head of the serpent. That happened. A great victory. A way, because of that, was opened up for sinners, just like you and I, to come into the presence of God. We can't do that by ourselves. One must have a, a clean hands and a pure heart. None of us have that, but Christ does. And because of him and his work of doing what we should have done in obedience and undoing what we did do by paying the debt for our sins, that is now this, this great marvelous transfer that, whereby all that he's accomplished is now credited to us by faith. And now God looks at us in a, in a legal way as if we had never sinned. And now we can come into his presence because of the pure heart and the clean hands of our Savior Jesus Christ. And we are joined to him by faith and receive all of the benefits of that union. That's what Paul means when he constantly refers to Christians as being in Christ. But and yet, in spite of this great victory, or I shouldn't say in spite of it, alongside of or parallel with this great victory... There's something else that's going on, and Paul addresses it in the book of Acts. Paul would go to a particular town, and God would use him to plant a new church there, but he would return to that church to see how they were doing. 
And we read there in Acts 14, verse 22, that with the goal of strengthening the souls of the disciples, those ones that God had brought to faith through the preaching of Paul, he was there to encourage them, exhorting them to continue. It's not enough just to make a confession of faith, sign a card, and you're in. There was a, there's a continuation aspect of, the, of a true saving faith. There's a new life that's now being lived. And he says this to him, and he reminds the Thessalonians of the very same thing. These, what's happening with you, these difficulties, afflictions, and tribulations. I told you about these things. And these things are happening. And this is what he said in Acts 14.22. We must, through many tribulations, enter the, enter the kingdom of God. And what Paul is saying is a, a reality of the Christian life. In fact, for the Christian... Individually, as churches, there will be persecution. There will be suffering. There will be afflictions. There will be those who seek to deceive you. And it's interesting that the letters, if you read them carefully from Paul, Peter, John, Jude, these are issues that are frequently addressed in the New Testament. These are the features of the Christian life. And this is all foretold. You can find many passages in the Old Testament that point to these days. Not only of the coming of Christ, but also what one writer has suggested as regards uh, prophecies in the book of Daniel. He said in there, there are prophecies of, of a dark and a subtle and a corrupt power. Destined to arise, he writes... And not only to arise, but to work with disastrous energy in this messianic kingdom. After it's been formally set up. And the kingdom has been formally set up. Christ inaugurated it. And now arises the enemy. And this this understanding about the age in which we're living, these latter days is not only has Christ come, not as only as the church being gathered, but also what has risen is this tremendous energy of the enemy to fight it, to try to undermine it. Tribulation, persecution, suffering, affliction, deception. And it's this framework that is so important to understand, particularly as we look at these two letters, but really all of Scripture, this framework of the latter days, is what Paul is working off of, particularly in these letters to the church of Thessalonica. Christ has inaugurated the kingdom, but it's also the beginning of what, what the scripture also refers to as the great tribulation that the church will endure. And therefore, when we come to these verses, what, what is Paul doing? We've all already seen he is concern for them. He wants to be sure that they're persevering in the faith, not only for their benefit because he loves them, but for his benefit as well. As he, as he says, that he's concerned about his labor not being in vain. He was given a mission to preach and to teach and to plant churches, and the Thessalonians were the fruit of that labor, which meant that he was being faithful to what he was being given. They are the manifestation and evidence of that work that he's doing. He's concerned about it. But he's now talking about it in our passage, that encouraging them to persevere, but in this passage, centering around this 
reality of tribulation that will characterize the life of Christians and churches. The Thessalonians, they had come into new life. They had walked away from idols and now were serving the living God. And they came into the reality that there really is true forgiveness of sins by God through Jesus Christ. And that gave them great joy, peace, because they were at peace with God. And they now had new hearts and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is what it is to be born again. Which is what it is to be regenerate, to be a new creature in Jesus Christ. And the manifestation of that was love. Remember, he, he, Paul recognized these virtues in them back in verse 3 of chapter 1. I, I remember you, and I pray for you, because I've seen your, that work of faith. I've seen the labor of love in your lives. I've seen the patience of hope. You really are expecting Christ to come again, and you're living in the light of that. I've seen it. But they were also experiencing this onslaught as he made reference to in the latter part of chapter 2, this onslaught of outward persecution. In fact, it was because of that that Paul had to flee the city. So there was this outward activity that was taking place in the form of persecution, but there was also things going on within. There was false teachers that were arising in the church. He gets more into that in the second Thessalonians. There was false teaching about the coming again of the Lord. The people were getting all worked up and upset. It was undermining their faith. Jesus spoke about these things. We not only know about these things from the Old Testament, as we commented about the, some of the prophecies in the book of Daniel, but Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares. He likened God's people to the wheat, but the enemy comes and plants tares amongst the wheat. These are the false teachers that come into churches. Jesus spoke of the false Christs, people who would actually claim to be the Messiah. One of the groups that looked at this building, the founder of it claimed to be the Messiah. There will prophets that will come along and, and come up with new things. There will be various deceptions that come along. When Paul was returning to Jerusalem to bring the gift to the Christians who were suffering in Jerusalem at the time to, to demonstrate to the Jews there that the Gentiles, were too, uh, they too had a true saving faith and wanted to show their love for their brothers and sisters by giving them this gift. On his way, he stopped and met with the, the elders from the church at Ephesus. And he said this warning to them in Acts 20, at verse 29. He says, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. See the language there that Paul uses, the same language Jesus used in our study in John, John 10, the flock, the wolves. He says, I know the savage wolves will come in among, not sparing the flock, also from among yourselves. He's talking to elders here. Even amongst you as elders, men will rise up. And they'll be speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Jesus made this very clear as well on that last night, the night of his betrayal, Jesus meeting with his disciples in the upper room. And he's warning them. 
John 15, we see these words at verse 18. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. And many who profess to be Christians who want to still go along with the world. They don't want to get any negativity. They don't want to be made fun of or, or have any kind of difficulties because of their so-called beliefs. But if there's a true saving faith, you're not of the world. And that's what he says about them. Yet, because you are not of the world, you've been brought out of the world, you have a new heart, a new disposition, a new standing before God. I, but I chose you out of the world. It was God who brought that to pass. Therefore, the world hates you. Jesus said about himself in John chapter 7, verse 7, the, the world hates me. And he gave the reason why. It's interesting. What do you mean the world hates you? Peter spoke of Jesus in the house of Cornelius as one who went about doing good. You would think Jesus would have been given the key to every city. Welcome, Jesus. And yet he said, no, 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 the world hates me because I tell them of their sin. And they don't like that. And that's why the world hates Christians, too, because we tell them of their sin. One way we do that is how we live. We don't follow the way the world lives. And the world looks at us, and it's like looking in a mirror, and they see the ugliness of their own behavior. Instead of being driven to their knees in humble confession, they're angered by it. They're proud. And they'll hate you for that. Because they know, because they have a conscience, that they should be living that law-abiding life. When I say law-abiding life, that law that is summed up by love for God and love for neighbor, they know they're not living that life. And they don't like seeing it in you. And they're going to hate you for that. And Paul warned the church at Colossae. Watch out for these ones who start bringing in these made up rituals. That you've got to go through. Watch out for these people who bring in all these. Uh, so uh, what seem to be pious self-denying. Can't eat this. Can't do that. Can't this. Can't get married. Uh, certain ones. That's, those things have happened. And he's warning against those things. These are all these subtle uh, efforts by the enemy to undermine the church, undermine believers. And this is what Paul wants them to be aware of. And this will characterize this age. So how does he encourage and strengthen them? Well, firstly, he says in verse 3, No one should be shaken by these afflictions. New King James says not to be shaken. NIV, don't be unsettled. The ESV says don't be moved. And the real meaning there is, is helped by what Paul says a little later in his second letter. If you turn a page and you look at chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians, and you look at verse 4, he refers... He says, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God. For what? Because you're patient and your faith is remaining strong in all your what? Your persecutions and your tribulations that you endure. He's thankful for in that by 
persevering, they're demonstrating that they have a true saving faith. And we, he says, we boast of you. He says further, if you turn over to chapter 2 of that same second letter, very similar thought to what he says in verse 3 of our text. He says, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by the word or by letter, as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. That was one of the false teachings that had come into the church. False teachings about the return of the Lord. Don't be shaken by this. And he goes on to say, therefore, let no one deceive you by any means. And he goes on to describe that that day will come, and it won't come until the great apostasy takes place. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, when we get to it. But what he's getting at, and really a way of understanding that, is don't be moved from your faith, or unsettled from your faith, or shaken from your faith, because of the persecutions. Don't let that get to you. Understand that this is part of the Christian life. Tribulation, persecution, this unsettling. And he brings out the word deceived. That's one of the things that Jesus said about our enemy. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And he loves to, one of his chief techniques is is to deceive. It was the very same thing he did with Adam and Eve. Did God really say? He even tried that on Jesus. Tried to create some kind of doubt. God didn't really mean that. He got Adam and Eve to question God's goodness. As if God was holding out on them. Because they couldn't eat from every single tree. And he, he also tried to say, look, you're not going to die if you do that. I don't care what God said. He, 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 didn't, he, he told you that because he doesn't want you to become like him. That's what will happen if you eat from the tree. That deception. He hasn't changed tactics since. And we're going to find out as we get more into the second letter that there are some even to our day uh, who look at uh, tribulation. Oh, no, that's future. The Great Tribulation. We're not really in the Great Tribulation. Well, I wonder what they would say to those who suffered under bloody Queen Mary in England so long ago, who were burned at the stake, flayed alive, filled with arrows. Would they say that's not the Great Tribulation or the Spanish Inquisition? But we happen to live in a kind of a flabby age, I I would say, of the church here in America. We've never really seen any... Suffering, Perhaps one day we'll be counted worthy to suffer. But the idea that tribulations in the future, uh, oh, and, and who are taken up with uh, this, the popular view of a kind of a secret rapture. One day there's going to be cars driving down the road, no drivers. Uh, the, the church will be whisked away. There's nothing in Scripture that says that the return of the Lord will be a very visible, noisy event. It, 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 it's, it's this idea, this deception that, that uh, God doesn't want his people to suffer. There are people making a huge livings off this health and wealth gospel. Just send in your seed money and you can wear a beautiful suit like I have and drive a car like I have and I have a big car like mine. That's health and wealth. Name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. <laughs> All the names that are given to it. This teaching from Paul just demolishes that whole idea. 
He says, don't be shaken. You were appointed to these things. This is part of the Christian life. We, we tend to, the Christians tend to think, well, there's a normal Christian life, and then there's a, a persecution kind of a life. And what Paul's saying, the normality is persecution. That is the normal for the Christian life. And not only that, it will increase. We see the early stages of it, the progression of it. There will be a crescendo of it at the end. And on your own, if you read through Revelation 11, Revelation 20, and there in symbolic and prophetic language, there will be this catastrophic period of time. Or after the, the thousand years, and that's not that that's a period of time, it is not a literal time, but we're told there that the Satan is restrained in his ability to deceive the nations during this time of the gathering of the church. But at the end of those period that period of time, near the very last of the last days, he'll be let loose. And there will be a tremendous onslaught that will take place. And it's we've already been told these things. And he's saying, don't be surprised if this happens. Don't be shaken from your faith because of these persecutions. Look at what we read. I'm going ahead of ourselves a little bit here by going again to chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Paul is saying this great apostasy must take place before the Lord returns. And he talks about this lawless one who will come. This attempt by the enemy to mimic the incarnation. And he says that about this lawless one, this must happen before the Lord's return in verse 9 of chapter 2 in Second Thessalonians. The coming of the lawless one is according to the what? The working of Satan. With power, signs, lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. What a warning that is to Christians. Do you love the truth? There are many people who claim to be Christians never read their Bibles. Very minimal their exposure to the Word through preaching and teaching. They're low hanging fruit. They're easy targets for the enemy to come along and deceive them because they're not rooted and they've got not got into the depths of Scripture. And, and, and Satan's going to have some kind of level of power, signs and wonders, and people are taking up all those things, aren't they? And what we should be cultivating is the love of God's Word. And you find yourself getting cool to it, that should be a red flag to you. Get on your knees and confess it and ask God to help you and pray and get your Bible out and read it. Study it. And therefore suffering, this is really what Paul's saying in this letter, suffering is the proof that you're a true follower of Jesus Christ. The two go together. And God uses it for the testing of your faith. Is it real? Pliable in the book Pilgrim's Progress went with Christian and when they fell into the slough of despond but Pliable found out that that was Bunyan's way of presenting the Christian life as not being this happy-go-lucky everything works out for you he got distressed, disgusted with it went back 
Not only went back, he joined in with those who were persecuting Christian. Jesus, in commenting on the parable of the seed, he talked about some seed. You remember that parable. Some, the seed were eaten by the birds, went in one ear and went out the other. The seed, of course, is the word. Others got all tangled up in the cares of the world, but there were some others that fell on shallow ground. And he says in Mark 4:17 that they have no root in themselves, and they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the world's sake, immediately they stumble. There are some who seem as if they've come to Christ, they're stirred up, and then they slowly work their way out of the church and they're gone. But the true, the true saving faith, uh, Paul helps us from Romans. In his teaching about being justified by faith in chapter 5, he says, if you've been forgiven, in verse 1, then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But then he says this in line with what he's telling the Thessalonians. But not only that, But we glory in tribulations, meaning what will accompany your true faith is tribulations. But you can glory in them because you know what God's doing with them, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. Character, hope. That's what God's doing with these things. And now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And of course, those wonderful verses in Romans 8. I remember years ago reading about a particular Puritan who, when he was dying, just simply said to someone who was there, Fetch me up Romans 8. (laughs) He wanted to hear it again. What did he want to hear? Who, in verse 35, shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we're killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. There it is again. The parallel of coming to the faith and yet entering into a life characterized by affliction, tribulation, it's in some measure. But then he goes on to say, yet in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, he encourages them by letting them know, no, this is the normal for Christians. Don't be surprised. Don't be put off. But he also says this, and I don't know if this might have raised an eyebrow with you, but know that we are appointed for this. Now, Christians often talk about things in their lives as God permitted something to happen in our life, allowed something to happen in our life or in some other context. But that doesn't say it all. That's true, but there's more. 
Whatever it is, whatever difficulty, whatever affliction, persecution, etc., they were planned, orchestrated by God who is sovereign in your life. Well, how do we understand this? Well, it all has to do ultimately with the sufferings of Christ. That's, there's the focal point of why in our efforts to understand what he's saying that they're appointed for us. So we, let's first look at the sufferings of Christ. Christ knew why he came. He wasn't caught off guard when he was hauled off to the cross ultimately. Had to withstand that kangaroo court. He knew... He, He came to save his people from their sins. That's why they named him Jesus. And all through his earthly ministry, his eye was on the cross. This cloud there, as it were, that loomed there for him. And as he approached it, he got nearer and nearer to it. We read in John 12, verse 27. He said, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, but for this purpose I came to this hour. There was appointed for him that he would undergo what he underwent with a face like flint. There's this unwavering determination. Persevering. It would be the greatest of his trials. And he on the cross drank to the dregs from the cup of God's Fierce wrath poured out upon him. Why? So that you might be forgiven if you're one who is trusting in Christ as your Savior. So that you might be spared damnation. So that you might be rescued. So that you might be redeemed. That you would be justified, sanctified, glorified. And if you have that true faith, if you are in Christ, and that's how he describes them in verse 14 of chapter 2, in Christ Jesus, he says there, to suffer as a Christian is to be identified with and to have fellowship with Jesus Christ and his sufferings. I have a very interesting verse that Paul tells, writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. What is he talking about? He's Certainly the work of Christ on the cross was sufficient, but his sufferings, Christ, were for our redemption. Our suffering is for his name. And Christ, because of our union with him, sees our sufferings as his sufferings. That's what Paul's talking about. And this measure of sufferings has already been appointed to God's people. Paul wrote in Timothy in his second letter, chapter 2, verse 11, this is a faithful saying, "If, if we died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Preordained. Latter-day tribulation and and suffering. 
Peter in his sermon talked about the suffering of Christ, the, him being delivered, Acts 2.23, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. No accident there. God determined to do this, and yet there was no relief from the accountability of those who murdered him. And we follow Jesus in this. How do we do that? We die to self, and we rise with Christ. One of the early church fathers, Gregory, wrote this, The more sorely I am borne down by present evils, the more assuredly do I anticipate future joy. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus said to his disciples, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. As I was getting ready for this message, one commentator wrote this very interesting statement, grabbed my attention. He wrote this, Sadly, some churches may not go through the persecutions they should because they don't raise their doctrinal and ethical profile high enough in standing for the gospel. Oh, by God's grace, may that not characterize Teco. Remember what Paul said in his effort to strengthen the souls of those that he'd won over to Christ as he visited these towns. Uh, continue in the faith. Isn't that what I always say to you? Keep the faith. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Don't waver. Don't compromise the truth. Don't be silent. Remember that great goal of hearing those wonderful words from Jesus, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And remember this, that Paul wrote, again in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, chapter 8, he's contrasting the life lived in the flesh, the life lived in the spirit, and he talks about Christians, children, he addresses them in verse 17, chapter 8. If you're children, then you're heirs. Heirs of God, joining in His, all that was accomplished by Him and His glory, and joint heirs with Christ. And then he has this, this qualifier. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. May that be true of you, may that be true of this church. And may God help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't always like to hear about affliction and suffering, deception, and yet that is our calling. We are in a fallen, rebellious world. Paul viewed his sufferings as fellowship with his Savior. And he also put them into proper perspective when he talked about the light, momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory. Father, help us to rest in that, even when we don't understand what's happening around us, to know that there's not one set of circumstances, event or thing that's outside of your redemptive historic purposes that have found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Father, we live in these last days. 
We know there's a day coming when the Lord will return. May He be find us working. Not to earn anything, but as outworking of the praise and thanksgiving and love that we have for our, you, our, our love for our great Savior. But we can't do this on our own. We can do nothing of ourselves. But we're thankful that we who have been called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling can be confident that it is you who work within us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. But help us, Father, to stand strong, to be able to say with Martin Luther, here we stand. Join him in that great hymn that we sang that he wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, knowing that there were enemies around us, and yet they will not prevail. A great victory has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. I I pray that everyone in this room and online will be the recipients of the blessings of the accomplished work of redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Father, if they have not done that, you would reveal that to them. I pray that you would humble them and draw them irresistibly to yourself in in repentance and confession. Give them, ask to give them the, the wonderful gifts of faith and repentance that they might embrace Jesus Christ and enter into the true joy and peace of the Lord. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.